Welcome. You're listening to CrossvilleRevolution.com. Hey, well, let's start out with a question this weekend, though. How many people in here would be honest and admit that you have family drama in your family on the regular? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. Now, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. If anybody doesn't have their hand raised around, you point at them and tell them they can repent later, okay? Like, boy, we all know. How many of y'all know that in your family, there's one or two totally nutso crazy people? Raise your hand if you got one of those in your family. Now, keep your hand up. And look at the people without their hand raised, because if your hand isn't raised, you're the crazy one, okay, y'all? We don't have any crazy people in our family. Yeah, that's because it's you, okay? Like, they talk about you after you leave Christmas, and it's been said that families are like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts, right? A dysfunctional family has been said to be any family with more than one person. Maybe you got married and had a couple of kids and you had to go through the process of being in a new season and go through the growing pains of being a family. And so it was just two of you, but now it's three or four or five or six of you and you're having to learn how to do things as you grow. Well, we're continuing our series through the book of Acts today. We took a little break for a while from it, but we're picking up right where we left off, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. And what we're going to see today is we're going to see some family drama in the church. We're going to see growing pains take place as the church gets bigger. And I think where we're going to end up today is going to be a really good place. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 in Acts chapter 6. Y'all with me say I am. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing... The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, you'll hear more about Stephen later, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, once again, you're going to hear about Philip later in the book of Acts. Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and let's get an amen because I think I got those names right. Okay, y'all, like amen, y'all. So and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Up until now, if we review where we had been so far in the book of Acts, the church has been incredibly unified, And we've seen some incredible things happen as a result. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is preparing his church. He gives his 
final orders to the church in the form of the Great Commission, and the church is fired up, and they're ready to go do whatever Jesus tells them to do. In Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost happens. Most people point at the day of Pentecost and go, that is one of the most incredible things that have ever happened in the church. Everybody's speaking different languages, and they're preaching the gospel, and 3,000 people get saved in one day. Incredible. Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a man at the temple, and then he gets to share the gospel uh, with all the people at the temple, and many people are saved. Incredible. Acts chapter 4, the gospel is preached to the religious leaders. It tells us that the church is filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result of spirit of generosity and a spirit of boldness overtake the church, and it is incredible. In Acts chapter 5, we see God purifying his church, and that story with Ananias and Sapphira. We see uh, the apostles healing many people. Uh, We see the apostles in Acts chapter 5 rejoicing in the face of persecution. And so far, it's been a fun ride. But when we get to Acts chapter 6, we see and we get the first look at church drama. See, so far, everything had been exciting. The church had been unified. There is a spirit of boldness in the church. But in Acts chapter 6, we see the church face one of the greatest challenges it will ever face. And that challenge is success. Everything God had told them to do was happening. The Great Commission is taking place. At the beginning of this passage, it says disciples are being added daily. Uh, The church is full of the Holy Spirit. There's healings and incredible things happen. But now in Acts chapter 6, we see the humanistic side of the Christians start to come out. And we see some division and we see some drama. Success, even in a church tends to make things more complicated. In other words, the bigger a church gets, the more disciples a church makes, the more people that get saved in a church, the more complicated the church gets. Chuck Swindoll would put it this way. The first century, this first century phenomenon known as the church had no constitution, No organizational plan, nothing but the indwelling Holy Spirit to keep it cohesive and heading in the right direction. While the church remained relatively small, this worked just fine. Eventually, however, the Jerusalem church encountered the perils that accompanied rapid growth. So now, instead of there being, you know, 120 apostles... They've got thousands and thousands of people, thousands and thousands of personalities, thousands and thousands of backgrounds. Now they have resources. Remember we talked about Barnabas sold land and gave the money to the church and a spirit of generosity overtakes this church. And so they have resources. But they got drama and they got problems. The great theologian Puff Daddy was right. More money. Mo problems. We got that for the screen for you. Take a picture and remember, you're going to need that. So we see things start to get more complicated as they get bigger. 
Y'all, I can remember almost nine years ago when we started Revolution Church. We started in a movie theater down the road at Rocky Top 10. And there was about 30 of us the first Sunday, really the first month or two. Had about five or ten kids in the kids' ministry, if you even want to call it kids' ministry. And I can remember when we started the church and there was just that small amount of people. How freeing it was when we came to church. We just had one service. Everybody knew everybody. All the traditions that churches typically fight over, there was none of that. None of the baggage was present from previous churches. We'd, we were just there to worship God, and that's all we wanted to do. No organizational structure. We didn't own anything. We didn't have a bank account. I didn't get paid for three months when we started this church. Like It was so pure. But you fast forward now, nine years later, as we've grown exponentially the last nine years, and it's totally different. Last week at Easter, uh, Easter was incredible. Amen, y'all? And, and I'm going to tell y'all what we had in attendance, but I don't want you to get focused on the numbers because it's not just about the numbers. We'll clarify this at the end of the sermon, but churches can have big numbers and have no effectiveness, okay? So last weekend, we had a record attendance, almost 1,100 people over four services at Rev Church. Isn't that incredible? It's incredible, man. We can give God a hand for that. 25 people either rededicated or gave their life to Christ and got baptized. God just ran up front. He was here last weekend just now. We were supposed to baptize one, like Pastor Brandon said. Dude just ran up front and said, man, I need to get baptized. I was like, well, you ain't got time to get dressed. Come on, man. And we dunked him just now. Like, that's incredible. So we still got the fumes of Easter going. But with that many more people, it makes things way more complicated. Way more complicated. We started the church. I never would have thought that we were going to be talking about building a facility and buying property, ever. That's not why we did it. And now, listen, I know now y'all are sick of hearing me talk about the facility and you're tired of hearing me talk about money. You're sick of it. I get it. Hey, you want to know who's sick of talking about money more than anybody in this stinking church? Me. It's all I talk about anymore. I got to update the staff. I got to update the elders. I got to update the facility team. I got to update the finance team. I got to come up here and update y'all. And then y'all ask me one-on-one -on -one all these questions about everything. Man, I'm tired of talking about it too. But guess what? If we're going to reach more people, it's going to get more complicated. If we're going to reach more people, these are the things that we are going to have to go through. It's no different than the early church was. This drama is really arising because you had two different groups of Jews that made up this early church that had converted to Christianity. This translation calls them Hellenistic Jews and Hebraic Jews. The NASB refers to them as Jews and natives. The Hebraic Jews were the traditional Jews. They were the Jewish people that followed the Old Testament law, but they also followed something known as Pharisaical law, which were man-made rules. And so everything they did was very traditional. The way they interacted and socialized, even washed their hands, conducted business, did church, dressed, everything 
was very traditional. That's the Hebraic Jews. Well, the Hellenistic Jews were just as Jewish as the Hebraic Jews by bloodline and by birth, but they had adopted secular things. They had adopted Gentile and Greek customs, so to speak. They still rejected pagan religions. They worshiped the one true God. They sacrificed. They celebrated festivals. They obeyed the Old Testament, but they didn't obey those Pharisaical laws, those extra traditions that the Hebraic Jews did follow. They recognized the Roman government as their government, and they didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek most of the time. So you had these two groups coming together to form the church. And the only way I could explain it is imagine in our context today, you have an old-time religion church that's like King James only. Everybody has to wear a suit and tie. No tattoos or you're going to hell. And they combine with a church like ours where it's like everybody wears a T-shirt and shorts to church. Everybody in our church just about has a tattoo. Uh, We use different translations. And these two groups are now trying to get along. I don't even want to think about what that would be like nowadays for us, right? But these two groups are trying to get along. What's amazing is up to this point, because they have Jesus and because they have the Holy Spirit, they have a common bond and the unity has been incredible, but, but they're human beings. And if it's one thing we know about human beings... Human beings are flawed. And friction as a result of the flaws of human being were inevitable in the early church. So this first glimpse at church drama really leads to our first look at what's known as church organization or church structure, if you want to call it that. Or we could also refer to it as the first look at church governance. If I was to show you a picture of a boat and ask you, who's the most important person that's involved in this boat? Some of you would say the captain is the most important. Some of you would say the crew is the most important. But I would bark back at you and say, no, actually, the first person that's the most important is the boat builder. Because if the boat isn't built right, then it's going to sink. And it doesn't matter who else is on the boat. It's going to cause all kinds of damage. Well, When it comes to church governance, organization, and structure, God has outlined a way to build the boat, so to speak, of the church so it doesn't sink and cause all kinds of damage. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. See, what we see in this passage is the disciples recognize that God had given them specific spiritual gifts that they were called to preach, teach, and lead. And so they recognized this and recognized that with that, they were not called to minister to every individual need in person. And so what Peter essentially says is, we're called to do this and we cannot get bogged down by the details of all the ministry, even the very important detail of caring for widows. And so what we see as a result in this passage is, the first deacons in the church are selected to serve. Now, the word deacons comes from the Greek word dikanos, which means serve tables. 
And it's interesting when we read this passage, the disciples used wisdom because they allowed the church to choose these particular deacons. The reason they did that is because, remember, there's two groups. There's the Hebraic Jews, which every single one of the disciples was a Hebraic Jew. They're being accused by the Hellenistic Jews of not taking care of the Hellenistic widows. With this accusation was a passive-aggressive, subtle suggestion that there was a cultural bias intact. And so the disciples say, hey, we won't choose them. Hellenistic Jews, you guys choose who these deacons should be. And so they choose the names that I just read off to you. And every single one of these names is a Greek name which seems to indicate that every one of them is a Hellenistic deacon. We see the first look at church governance, church structure, and church organization. Now, what I want to do now is I want to move into really more of a teaching aspect of the sermon, and I'm getting ready to put one of my awesome charts up for you guys. Do y'all love my charts? Say amen. Like, just make me feel good. Everybody say amen on three. One, two, three. Amen. Okay, you guys are lying, but it's all right. You already got to repent for saying your family don't have drama, so it's all good, right? So I'm getting ready to show you a chart to really break down what I believe God lays out as the biblical church governance for a church or structure or organization. You can read further in 1 Timothy uh, and the book of Titus on these specifically, specifically the qualifications, and we'll go over more of that here in just a minute. But I want you to understand as I lay this out, in fact, guys, go ahead and just put that up there. As I, we lay this out, I want you to understand that I've got six different categories, and you may think that one of these categories doesn't exist. You may add to these categories and if we disagree on church structure, you don't have to leave the church. It's a secondary issue. It's not something that we need to divide over and fight over. And I'm just going to tell you up front, this issue of church governance is something that whole denominations have split off before and started like churches and denominations and everything as a result of this. Now, I want to point this out right out the gate too, that when it comes to church governance, when it comes to how a church is supposed to function biblically, um, you cannot find anywhere in scripture that it is a democratic system. Democracy is a great way to run a country, the best way in my opinion. But biblically, it's not the way a church should run. In other words, everybody shouldn't get a vote on every little thing about whether or not we buy a bottle of water, what color the carpet is, and all that stuff. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, that's not to say that wise leaders in churches don't consider what their congregations think. We see an example of that right here. They delegated this decision out to the Hellenistic Jews so that they could pick the deacon. So let's go over this real quick and just run through these. Let's look at the position, the function, and the qualification. And then I want to make a couple of points at the end, uh, uh, two things that I want you to see from this that I want to make really, really clear. Uh, first position is the head of the church. Y'all know who that is? That's Jesus. And the qualification, he's Jesus. Okay, y'all, like he's Jesus, so he's the head of the church. He's the big dog at the very top. The second position in the church, and as I explain these, let me say this too. This is not Roman Catholicism. I'm not saying that 
the closer to the top you get, the closer to God you get. I'm not saying that elders have more effective prayer lives than teachers and leaders do. I'm not saying that someone has more access to salvation, to the Holy Spirit, all those things we are equal in. What we're dealing with when we talk about church structure, church governance, is these three areas. We're talking about who God has decided to give authority to, decision-making ability, and what the qualifications are for those. Does that make sense to everybody say amen? So I'm not saying, oh, the big bad elders, they're so much more spiritual than y'all are. That's not what I'm saying, okay? Elders, the word elders has nothing to do with age. Most people think that if you're going to be an elder in a church, it means you've got to have gray hair or no hair. That's not always true. It's a title that doesn't have anything to do with age, even though the Scripture does say they need to be tested. So they can't be young in their faith, so to speak. Uh, Pastor Brandon, 28 years old. He's one of the elders of Revolution Church. Okay, so he's one of our elders. So elders, a couple of things about the functionality. Number one, the Scripture is very clear that there should be a plurality of elders. In other words, it should not be a dictatorship. If you show me a church with one person making every single one of the decisions, I'll probably show you a dysfunctional church. It's probably dysfunctional. So there needs to be a plurality of elders. They're all accountable to each other. Uh, Me being one of the elders here, I'm accountable to the elders here. They call me out on the regular for stuff. They let me know when I'm off base on stuff. Uh, They really make the big decisions. The elders do long-term decisions, those types of things. You know, are we going to buy land? Do we need to build a building? Those types of things. Elders make those decisions. Now, if you're Baptist and you come from a deacon board background, hold on, because this is not blasphemy, okay? Is everybody with me? Say amen, okay? Okay, so just hang on just a second, okay? So uh, elder, the word elder can actually be interchanged with the word overseer or bishop in the scripture. Uh, It'll use the word bishop, overseer, elder. Uh, Some churches would say, well, an overseer is like other pastors of other churches that hold the pastor accountable and come in whenever there's a crisis or something like that. Nothing wrong with that. That's totally fine. But when you read the scripture, actually those three words are interchangeable. I included the word pastor in there just so I wouldn't forget to tell you that pastors aren't necessarily always elders. The word pastor is used one time in scripture in Ephesians chapter 4. There are other times that pastors are alluded to when they're called angels and different things like that in the book of Revelation. But in Ephesians chapter 4, pastor is used and pastors aren't always elders, even though in American context, pastors are usually elders. So one of their functions is they teach and administrate. Again, big decisions, long-term decisions, qualifications. This is a 30,000-foot view. Uh, So go read 1 Timothy chapter 3. Go read Titus. I think next year we're going to do a series through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and that's when we'll get into the juicy stuff, man, like are women allowed to be elders and different things like that? But I've got a sinus infection, and I can't handle all y'all's emails this week, okay? So it makes sense to everybody say amen. It's, it's controversial stuff in a lot of circles, okay, y'all? And so that's elders. Number three down the list is deacons. Deacons are really, in the Scripture, servant leaders, and they are not elders. Now, All three churches that I served in on staff before we started Rev Church, we had a deacon board that was essentially elders. 
We just named them the wrong thing. And so you probably most likely come from a background where you had a board of deacons that functioned as elders. Your church just named them wrong, okay, y'all? So God knows how to name stuff. If we make a mistake, it's our fault, okay? But deacons, if you read it in Scripture, they're not elders. They're servant leaders. Specifically, like in Acts chapter 6, what we're seeing is they meet the temporal needs of the church. They meet the physical needs of the church. And they're the ones that really do the hands-on ministry, okay? Now, this is not to say that elders don't do hands-on ministry. It's not to say that elders don't meet temporal needs and physical needs of the church. There's a lot of bleed over in these areas. Is everybody still with me? Say amen, okay? This is your seminary class on church governance, okay? Uh, Again, qualifications. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm just going to tell you in 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications for deacons and elders, they're pretty stringent pretty hardcore, okay? Uh, We probably would differ in this room. There'd be several people that differ on different things. Can you be divorced? Can it be a woman? Different things like that. But one thing's for sure, those qualifications are pretty stringent. Next on the list is teachers and leaders. Uh, In Rev Church, teachers and leaders lead groups, lead ministry. They preach, they teach. Teachers and leaders teach kids in the kids' ministry. Small group leaders for youth because they're teaching and leading kids. Uh, Small group leaders at home. Uh, These are teachers and leaders. Many of the scriptures that I have up here for teachers and leaders, and the reason I made this a category, many of these scriptures are warnings about false teachers and bad leaders that are usually referred to as wolves. So this is why this is a category. Be very careful who you let teach. Be very careful who you let lead. Matthew 23, Romans 2, Acts 20, 1 Timothy 6, 1 John 4. Uh, there are some different scriptures like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. Again, don't have time to get into the nitty-gritty of this. This is a 30,000-foot view that say things like, we don't have time to explain this, say things like women shouldn't teach men in a large corporate setting and those types of things. So teachers and leaders, number five, Partners and members. Uh, Partners and members could also be called brethren. I'm doing a study right now through Corinthians, and Corinthians is clearly written to the church in Corinth. And they were nuts, y'all. I'm telling you, they were nuts at the church in Corinth. And clearly written to the church in Corinth because Paul over and over says, brethren, brethren, do this. Brethren, stop doing this. Brethren, this is the brethren. Uh, We don't have membership at this church. We have partners at this church because members makes it sound like it's a country club. And we want people to know that if you're going to jump in with Rev Church, you're a partner. You have responsibilities. You don't have rights, so to speak. It's not like, oh, my tea time is at this time. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. And so I know y'all got some stuff flashing through your head, all your church experience with all these different titles and stuff. Deacons, I know what a deacon is. They're the people that stand on the church porch and smoke the whole time while the preacher is preaching, right? What was the sermon about? I don't know, but I didn't like it. Partners and members, though, they worship, they grow, they serve, they pray, they attend and come to church. Uh, I just put almost the entire New Testament is about the church. Now, there's like Revelation. You know, Revelation is about end times that doesn't like, it's not pertaining to how we function individually and corporately as a church. But most of the New Testament is all about instructing partners, members, the brethren. Number six is attenders. And I included this category. Because I think most people fall into this category. 
in the church in America. Attenders, the function is come as you are. No perfect people allowed. The qualification is you're a human being. Go ahead and put that next graphic up, please, the uh, ladder. Notice a couple of things about the different roles in a church. Number one, notice that the higher up the ladder you get, the less people that are called to those specific roles. There's only one Jesus. There's only a few elders, a handful of deacons, some leaders and teachers. It tends to go out, I guess, a pyramid. I didn't want y'all to think it was like multi-level marketing, though. You know what I'm saying? But, like, that'd be a better way to show this. But, uh, and then you've got the partners and the members of the church, and then you've got attenders. Notice as well, and this is, I'm being very clear with this, okay? And, and I, we need to correct this, Okay? I know you've seen the memes online that say something to the effect of God does not call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Now, I get the heart behind that saying, and I think it really has more to do with anointing. That's what they're talking about, not qualifications, because I'm just being honest with you guys. When you read the Bible, some of these roles they're very clear on the qualifications. Very, very, very clear on the qualifications. Notice that the higher up the list you go of the roles in the church, the more stringent the qualifications get. And so I believe that the majority of people that go to church in America today they're stuck right here, attender. At Revolution Church, you can attend, and you can do whatever you want, honestly. Come as you are. You're an attender. Go have sex. Go do drugs. We got no authority over you. You're just attending once a week, you pop in every once in a while for Easter, Christmas, you know, once a quarter, whatever. You're an attender. And we're glad you're here. But when you decide to go from attender to a partner at Revolution, what you're doing is you, as soon as you put your foot on the next rung of the ladder and you move up, you're saying, I'm going to fulfill these qualifications. And with that will come accountability and will come standards. You go from partner and you want to be a teacher or a leader. Man, I, I want to teach in the kids' ministry. Well, you'll find out if you go through the growth track here at Rev Church that we, we have pretty strict standards. Like, you know, if you're going to teach my kids in the kids' ministry, I mean, I'm sure you would agree. You want to make sure that that person is not a brand-new believer. They can handle the Word. They could read our statement of beliefs and stay within that statement of beliefs and have kind of a good grip on theology to where they can answer basic questions and different things like that. You want to make sure that that person doesn't come in smelling like booze because they were out all night the night before partying, that their holiness is in check. Is everybody with me? Say amen. amen. I mean, that's y'all's kids. Mine are grown now. So you know what I'm saying? Like... 
You wouldn't be cool with us just letting anybody. And the further up the ladder you go, as soon as you move up that step, listen, y'all, the qualifications become more stringent. This is why at Revolution Church we have these standards. Is because we really believe it's biblical. My prayer this weekend is that if you're one of the majority that I believe is stuck right here, that you move up a rung, that you go all in. The heart behind me sharing this church governance is not to confuse you. It's not to be like, well, this is how we run and how other churches should run. It's not about that. The heart behind this is some of y'all, man, you've been going to church your whole life. And you've only been an attender. And you've been like, man, I, I, I don't want to go all in because then somebody may call me out. And nobody's going to call me out. I went to Krispy Kreme about a month ago. Amen for Krispy Kreme. Amen, y'all. That's the most excited y'all are going to get the whole sermon. And the hot sign was on. I was by myself. And you know how it is when you're by yourself and the hot sign's on. I ordered a half dozen six hot donuts. And then, in shame, went to a parking lot by myself where nobody could see me. Those things are like crack, amen, y'all? Like they're just, what is it? But I ordered six donuts and a Diet Coke. I ate every one of the donuts. And there was a part of me that felt pretty good because I was like, well, at least I ordered a Diet Coke. That'll negate the effects of the six donuts in some way. No, it won't. The problem in the church today with a lot of people is we're living a Krispy Kreme life and we're in the flesh six days a week of sinful living, six days a week of indulgence. And then we show up to church on Sunday and attend and we get Diet Coke Christianity. And we've been taught, so I get it, and we think that that Diet Coke is gonna negate the six Krispy Kremes we've eaten throughout the week. Does that make sense to everybody? Only at Rev Church are you going to get a donut example. That was good, y'all. That was good. That was good. We get that. We get it. No, no, don't clap. So my prayer this weekend is that we, we move up a rung and we pursue something greater and we, we want to grow. And, and the reason is, is because... This is the first look at church drama in Acts 6. This is the first look at church government governance. But this is also the first look 
at the early church starting to function like a body. Up until this point, what we've learned in our sermon series is almost everything that happened had to do with Peter. I mean, yeah, the day of Pentecost, a whole bunch of people you know, spoke in different languages and shared the gospel. But other than that, it's all been Peter. Peter preaching the gospel. Peter healing people. Saw a little bit about Barnabas, how he sold a piece of property, had the spiritual gift of generosity. Yeah, we saw that. But now in Acts chapter 6, we see the church start to function as a body. We start to see a plurality of spiritual gifts in the people. I really believe, y'all, and I think COVID has bared this out the last two years, that in America, we've got an upside-down understanding of the way the church functions. And it is one of the most inefficient ministry models that there is. And the model is simply the lead pastor and the staff does all the ministry. And it's completely broken. Completely broken. And I think during COVID, we saw how broken it was. I got the stats on COVID uh, a couple weeks ago, a study from Pew Research. 15% of churches when COVID hit died instantly. Gone. 60% of churches, the largest amount, are running 30 to 60% what they were pre-COVID. So if you had 100 people pre-COVID, you got 30 to 60 people now. Praise God, we're one of the 5% of churches post-COVID that is growing or where we were pre-COVID. But that bears out the church was doing something wrong. People didn't even come back to church because they're like, we're not missing anything. It wasn't functioning as a body. This is why we encourage you so much to go through the growth track at Rift Church because our prayer is not that you'll just attend. We're pushing hard, man. There's a lot of churches you can go to just to be seen and just to get your dot coke Christianity in. But in here, you know, we're going to push you hard. We want you to discover your purpose so that you can make a difference for the kingdom because we honestly can't do it without you. I'm just going to tell y'all. Can I be real with y'all for a minute? Everybody say amen. This is the third service. I still have my voice. So Lord, just shut me up if you don't want me to say this, okay? But, but I'm just going to tell you, I don't know how this church would make it without the people that have the spiritual gifts that I don't have. Because I don't have every single spiritual gift. Y'all know that, right? Like I got one or two, and I'm not even that good at those. And the ones I don't have, y'all, I want to put this as, as undelicately as I can to make sure I communicate this as effectively as I can. I suck at them. I'm sorry if that offends you, but I want it to offend you. Because I'm terrible at them. And so I don't need to be doing them. Because it's going to hurt the church. Somebody's not going to like come to Jesus as a result if I'm doing stuff that I'm not called to do. It's exactly what the disciples are saying. Thank God for the people at Rev Church that have the spiritual gifts that I don't have, that our staff doesn't have, and fill those gaps so that the church can function like a body. I'm going to close with this. I heard a story about a guy one time that had invented an invention and he went to a patent attorney's office to try to get a patent on his invention. And this is why I'm telling you guys that it's not about the numbers, okay? But he got this patent attorney. He went to his office and took his invention there, and he was trying to apply for a patent. 
And he turned his invention on. And everybody in the whole lawyer's office came running when they saw it and heard it because it was beautiful. It had lights. It had noises. It did everything, all the bells and whistles. And somebody turned to the guy that had invented this thing and said, man, that's so cool looking. What does it do? And he was quoted as saying, do? It doesn't do anything, but doesn't it run beautifully? A big church can run beautifully but accomplish almost nothing, y'all. It's not just about let's cram as many people in here. Hey, we want to reach as many people as we can, and we're unapologetic about that. But I'm telling you guys, if all we're doing is swapping sheep with other churches and nobody's coming in and being changed, nobody's coming in and getting saved, and there is not life transformation happening as a result of the gospel, we got a big church that runs beautifully, but it ain't doing jack squat. What we see is when there's a proper organizational structure in place, multiplication in the church can become rapid and effective. And that's what we pray here at Revolution Church. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today. I thank you for every single person, once again, that is under the sound of my voice. What an incredible day. Uh, man, we're, we're, we're hung over from last Easter, and then today uh, you injected us with more adrenaline baptisms, life change happening. God, I pray for our church. I'm not naive. I know. Church this size, we're going to have drama. There's people that are going to get hurt. But God, I just pray that we remember that we are to think of others more than ourselves. I pray that love will cover a multitude of sins. I pray for the people that are sitting under the sound of my voice right now that are dipping their toe into the pool of Rev Church. And they're not sure because they've been hurt before. They've been devastated. They come from a church background where somebody let them down, where somebody lied on them, where somebody backstabbed them, where somebody hurt them. God, I pray that we are transparent and real as a church and let them know we're not perfect, we're doing the best we can. But God, I also pray that we could minister to them and we could love them and celebrate if they decide to go all in. Celebrate the fact that they're, they're back home. I pray for us, God, that we stay focused on the mission at hand. That when we mess up and our humanistic side comes out, God, that we would remember what we're called to do. And that's change lives with the gospel. We love you. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to CrossvilleRevolution.com.